everybody. Welcome to episode 64 of Literary Disco, Excavation. Today's episode in two parts. We will start with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which we pull down a book at random from our bookshelves and see what happens. And then we will tackle the book Excavation by Wendy C. Ortiz, an investigation of her memories of a relationship with her teacher. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. What's up, guys? Hey, Not much. how are you, sir? Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Mr. Strong, Ms. Pistel. A lovely day. Did you guys know that it's Banned Books Week? I did well, know it, it was won't be when week. this comes out, but I just did a Banned Books event last night at the Hartford Public Library, so I'm all into Banned Books just for the week. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was Banned Books Week until I read an article yesterday about some absolute fucking morons in Texas. I, this is going to come as a surprise to all of you, that in Texas, during Banned Books Week, a school banned some books. Great. <laughs> Idiots. Is that what Idiots. they thought it was for? They were like, yay, this is the week where we choose the books to ban. And, and the books they <laughs> banned are just so absurd. Hold on, let me let me pull up the list of the books they banned. Because one of them is just a, well, one of them is Siddhartha, so, which is, like, what, what are you going to ban that for? Um, but there what, was, what do, uh, do they have a rationale for ban, banning Oh, Siddhartha? yeah, inappropriate for like, young readers, you know. In what way, though? I, I don't remember that book having any. We talked about that book on this. It's like... Buddha's life story, right? Yes. I mean, it's yeah. pretty straightforward. He doesn't eat that much. <laughs> stops having sex. Like, it seems pretty pure Reaches and good. Like, yeah. Even if you're a hardcore Christian, is it mm. more like fear of anti-Christian messages in there? I'm, like, I'm sure it is. So here, oh, so this is, it's really weird. So it's in Highland Park, Texas, the Highland Park School District. They banned the following. Which, when books. I saw that, it scared me because yeah. I'm moving to Highland Park in Los Angeles, and I was like, "Is this my neighborhood? My new neighborhood? <laughs> banning books?" So it's uh, it's the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian by Sherman Alexie, uh, an Very abundance frequently banned. an abundance of Catherines by John Green, the art of racing Oof. in the rain by Garth Stein. The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. And here's the irony. Jeanette Walls is coming to the Highland Park Literary Festival that is put on by the school district. <laughs> uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Song of Solomon. And here's the one I really don't get. The Working Poor, Invisible in America by David oh Schipler. Oh, my God. You gotta keep the you gotta keep them invisible. Oh, that's why you yeah. don't allow a book about poor people to enter your curriculum. Right, it's that's horrible. It's so meta. Wow. We're gonna go ahead and ban this because it talks about the poor. Uh, what the fuck is wrong with people? That's insane. It that's is insane. completely ridiculous. Wow. I just don't understand. Like, why haven't they realized that by banning books, they're empowering them? You know, like we wouldn't even be talking about. You know, the, the Sherman Alexie book. I don't think, and I wouldn't be this week, except. Now we, I've tweeted about it, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. it's a, it's become an issue because it was banned. Like, just don't, oh, it's. Well, it's because these, these people who do this, these parents who get involved with this, they can't think out of the closed ecosystem of their tiny little skulls. And they don't <laughs> realize apparently that by saying something is bad, it's only going to make children, particularly in teens in specific, want to go investigate it. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I. Sometimes I think it, my view on these things would be different if I had children. But I just remember, you know, my own mother, who was a lunatic, who let me read everything. And by reading everything, I realized that 
even though my mother was a lunatic, there was a world outside of the bad one I was living in. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, books can save kids, and a lot of people don't want their children enlightened, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like the worst thing that could happen is you expand your sympathy. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, the worst thing that could happen is you encounter a type of person or a belief system that is so different from yours, and then maybe you're, you're, you listen to them or think about them in a different way because of a book. Like, how could that ever be a bad thing? Right. <laughs> you know, how could a book ever be a bad thing? It's like just information you're reading and sympathy, like expanding that. I, I, I can't. It doesn't make any sense. At my, uh, at my event last night, I was asked to interview an author, um, David... I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but David Hajdu, H-A-J-D-U, and he wrote a book about um, this huge comic book scare in the 40s and 50s um, where there's all these comic book burnings. And um, what was really interesting about it is that... Well, was this the 10 was, cent something or other? Yeah, the 10 cent plague. Right. Yeah. Um, it was really, I mean, like exhaustively done. And what's kind of pretty interesting about that is it was largely successful. I mean, they showed a lot of images he had this cool slideshow of images of like you know a piece of art that would be submitted and then basically to survive the artists and magazines would self-censor and make really like polish up their images so it was like a ghoulish hag and then it would like turn into a beautiful woman just so it would be published because it was just like too scary and weird for for little kids it's, a, it's an interesting book so i recommend it Hmm. Very cool. Go check it out. So speaking of ghoulish things and the darkness of human life. Um, uh -huh. Yes, I know where this is going. Julia, do you want to talk about anything? Do you feel like something weird is going on in your life that might be demonic <laughs> possession? Uh, what Todd is referring to is uh, we've been chatting over the internet lately because um, weird things have been happening in my house. And... I think that I am sleepwalking uh, almost every night and moving shit around in my house. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> or, so either you're sleepwalking or... Or there's a ghost. <laughs> oh, my God. We're bringing up Which ghosts. I do not believe. But here's what I said to, to Greg, my husband. I was like... Craig, I know there's not a ghost, but the idea that I know that I'm walking around and doing stuff means that I'm the ghost. Oh which my is god! Equally scary to me. By the um, way, great title for your memoir. I'm the ghost. Colby. I am the ghost. Whatever. Yeah, it's totally. I mean, you're, you're having like the others, the movie, the others. Oh, you're having that yes. twist. We're the yeah. dead people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it is incredibly bizarre. I mean, I don't sleep very well in general, and I used to sleepwalk very frequently as a kid and uh apparently like stand in the doorway of my parents bedroom just for a long time oh that until, would that would be fucking until they creepy. woke up yep and Back uh, lit by just like life. slowly swaying side to side like the the girl in uh is it uh paranormal activity right. just standing over her so scary like, yep oh. terrifying that movie scared the shit out of me for the same reason of like this is me. I'm the ghost. Um, <laughs> or that's so like, wait, what has that's been happening? Comfort film. Because oh, maybe it's not ghosts. Yeah. Maybe it's elves. You know, maybe gnomes or elves are invading. <laughs> no, Why do we go right to me. ghosts? Because you know, elf on a shelf. Like those things get down. They screw with kids' toys all the time. 
It's a viable possibility. You're laughing, but elf on the shelf. Poss- if you, if you, if you open the door to ghosts, you might as well accept elves and gnomes. That and those are two different things. You know, I mean, I would say leprechauns, but you're not in no, Ireland. No, she's not Irish. Unless no, they've been I'm imported. Not. Yeah. But um, so but certainly gnomes and, and elves or trolls. I mean, how big do trolls get? We don't know. Fairies. <laughs> I don't think trolls go in Pixies. <laughs> Pixies are meddling. Do Pixies you live under a bridge, Julia? No. <laughs> no. So, uh, but no, it is really weird. Let me tell you guys about some of the stuff I've been doing. All right. Um, and how did how did you find out, first of all, or did Greg notice it? Well, there was an interesting little prelude where, well, this is where it gets really funny because, you know, we think, you know, it sounds like all creepy and mystical, but it, it's really just weird. So um, you're going to know where this is going now that I've figured out that I'm sleepwalking, but... There was this one day where I had said to Greg, like, he was going somewhere, and I was like, oh, I'm going to order Chinese food and, like, do work all night. So I come home, and there's, like, this Chinese food, like, right in the front of the fridge as if he had, like, bought it for me and put it there. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. So I ate it, and then later I was like, hey, thanks for the dinner. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then basically this food just appeared, and I ate it, and I think now based on other things that have been happening in my kitchen i think i've been like going to the kitchen and rearranging things um so that's one thing and so which means by the way that the chinese food i ate was i think like two months old oh god Uh, (laughs) jesus it was great uh and then um really the main thing is my glasses like i'll wake up and they won't be by my bed they'll be like somewhere totally else in the apartment um which is so, you know, if any of our listeners have glasses, you know, like, you always know where they are. You're not just, like, randomly putting them down if you're as blind as I am. So once I figured that out, I realized I was walking around and doing stuff. Oh, um, my God. But, yeah. So or is it Elf on the Shelf. Is it always at night? Or, like, <laughs> are you taking naps in the afternoon and doing shit? No, it's always at night. Um, sleep is, I mean, sleep is fascinating. But when I take naps, I'm going into, like, deep restorative nap sleep mm-hmm. um but sleepwalking doesn't happen in uh, in that REM cycle it's this other like weird space where um you're not dreaming or anything you're just walking around or sleep talking is the same thing are you afraid you're going to like leave the house and get run over by a bus or something i i'm not no I'm I'm okay. I mean, like there are people that do that. There are people that drive. Oh, um, I mean, sleep eating is like a real serious problem that I hope I don't develop. Um, that that especially some people if it's two month old Chinese food. Yeah, that would be really disturbing. <laughs> oh. You should have yeah. images of. Do you remember Lost Boys when they like look down at the rice and it's all maggots? Ugh, yes. Oh. Yeah. You know what you should do, mind. Julia, is every night before you go to bed set out like a full farmer's market on your counter so that if you get up, it's not like you're going, It's oh. healthy. Yeah, it's healthy. Oh, it's organic. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like hummus. And... A selection of good cheeses. Yeah. yeah, like a lot of good cheeses, some hard tack to remind you of the good time on the boat. Great. That's Perfect. Funny. Call back. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm interested to see where it progresses, but probably what will happen is I'll just like, chill out and i'll stop doing it but it is very 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 strange and greg doesn't Um, wake up when you get up no i mean like i we don't go to bed or get up at the same time anyway normally um so he doesn't he doesn't care about me he's (laughs) he's fine he's like you're fine it doesn't matter (laughs) let me tell a really quick story though uh uh so i rarely sleepwalk anymore but i do still sleep talk all the time 
And when Greg and I were first dating, I mean, like, I think it was the first time he stayed over in my dorm room. This is how long ago it was. Long time ago. And he was sleeping against the wall, and I was on the outside of the bed. And apparently, I... So he was trapped against the wall, you know? And <laughs> A metaphor for your relationship. Um, I opened my eyes, and I, like, had a huge smile on my face. And all I said was, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then I just fell right back to sleep. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my and he god. was really, really scared. Oh my god. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my god. So just to recap, as a child, you would stand in the doorway to your parents' room in your nightgown, shaking. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And then as an adult, you woke your poor petrified boyfriend up who was Brand pinned against an institutional wall and said, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm going to kill you. Yes, exactly. So I wonder if part of you weird. thought it was funny. Like, some deep subconscious thought you were making a joke, or, like, what was happening? I don't know. I have no idea. So, anyway, he's used to it. (laughs) Anything that's not me murdering him, he doesn't care. (laughs) And we now enter this podcast as evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no shit. Foreshadowing. Anything ever happens to Greg in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. That is creepy Mm -hmm. as hell. All right, do we have numbers for the bookshelf roulette? Indeed we do, indeed we do. And uh, you guys, we have a special situation today. I've decided to select all numbers from the same person, a very attentive person who gave us all our numbers for the day. His name is Albert Choi, uh, and he's given us some great numbers here. So you guys ready? Let me uh, write them down, yes. All right, so we're going to play bookshelf roulette, meaning we're each going to select a bookshelf, and uh, our first number is what corner we're going to start at. So uh, if it's corner number one, it's going to be the top left, and it goes clockwise around. Um, Then we're going to count shelves down or up, depending on what corner we are. That's the second number. And then over books. So our numbers are corner number one, which is the top left corner, and then down four shelves, and then over 20 books. So one four twenty. You guys ready? I'm ready. Cool. All right. Break. All right, are we back? We're we're, we're back. all back. <clears throat> hey, before we start. Um, I need to send a special shout out as though we're on a rock station or a rap station in about 1994. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I okay. met a big fan of the show and I promised this big fan that I would say hello to him. So this fan also happens to be our lovely friend Chantal Corcoran's son, Barry. So oh. Barry Corcoran, we see you. We love you. We think you're awesome and you do great puns. My work here is done. Nice. We have great fans. We do. We Actually, I met fans. a couple fans at uh, the Mob Museum this past week when I was in Las Vegas, not so at the Las Vegas Library. They were very nice. They came out, and they brought me food and candy, so that was very nice. Awesome. Awesome. So what do you have, uh, Ryder Strong? What did you pull down? I landed on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Score. Kesey. Yeah, but, you know, it's funny. I, I'm just flipping through it because I – let's see. I'm trying to think. The first time I read this book was – well, it's the only time I read the book. I was in high school, and it was a summer class. I took a summer class when I was, like, 14, I think, or 15, that was all about um, reading books and then 
watching the movies that were based on those books. So we did this book. We did um, The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. which was also turned into a movie. Um, and a few others. I'm trying to remember what else was there. Um, but anyway, this was... This was one of them, and I don't remember the book that much. I remember the movie very well uh, because I've seen it multiple times since that summer, and I also saw the play on Broadway with Gary Sinise. When... Yes, yeah, I saw I the saw Gary Sinise too. version, huh. and that was incredible and wonderful. So, when was that? That was like two thousand and one ish, two thousand two, maybe two yeah, thousand. Sounds good. It was right when I moved to New York. It was one of those, you know, one of the plays, and I loved that production. So I don't. Is the book? Any good? Do you guys know? I don't. I'm I assuming it it's in, pretty great. Yes. I read it in high school. I think I liked it in high school. Yeah. So uh, one thing that the movie kind of deletes for reasons that makes it easier on itself, but the play reinserted from the book is that the book is largely from Chief's point of view. Right. Right. And so, um, yeah. So that, you know, I mean, Jack Nicholson is so hugely powerful in the movie. It's hard to remember anything but himself, but... To have it all filtered through this silent character is something that's really, you know, it's obviously easiest to pull that off in fiction. I, in the play, I think Chief was just kind of standing off to the side. Right. Watching <laughs> he was, everything. He was Julia Castell-like, just frozen <laughs> yeah, in the corner exactly. watching. watching. No, I remember in the play they did, um, they, they would do these flashes, the production, the Gary Sinise production, they would do flashes where you'd go into Chief's mind. Do you remember that? Right. They would yeah. turn off all the lights. Oh, how cool. And you would hear Chief's voice like as a voiceover right and um so there was a way to incorporate his pov it definitely felt like he was the one telling us the story even in the play uh but the movie doesn't even do anything like that right chief he does play a pivotal part at the end of the movie but obviously as a deaf and and dumb character he doesn't um there's a famous mute (laughs) you're always bringing up mutes right he's a mute right he doesn't speak todd loves the mutes and But it's true. Like, (laughs) hold on. Here's a question. This is something seriously because I've never met anybody who doesn't speak. I mean, obviously, being deaf makes it difficult to speak. Right. Okay. So, so, so when people when they like say deaf and dumb, which I don't think you ever hear post 1965, has anybody ever said the phrase deaf and dumb? But whether are do they just mean well they don't talk because they can't hear anything, or is there like an actual physical mute? Like, do people lose their voice and become mute? Well, what what is that? People is who are a... born deaf who can just never who speak, never right? Speak, they learn right. sign language, maybe. Okay, so that's being deaf, or they and... can make sounds, but they don't they don't speak like we hear speech. Right? Obviously. Why do they need to? Right? right. They they learn sign language right. if they you know. But why? Like, is there such a thing as being mute? Like, is that something that I happens, or is that something be. that only happens to, in movies when you've had a traumatic experience, like Newt in Aliens? Or the like, bro- the brother who kills the sister in uh, Mystic River is uh, right. Is... It's whenever there's a plot point that can't be revealed. Right, <laughs> you make the character mute who witnessed it. Right, this is. I mean, I've done this myself. Like, I've been guilty of this writing in my own screenplays. Like, so so is that just a writerly thing, or is that a real life? Okay, like, is... first of all, based on our. UK incident. Um, I'm not letting this go unlooked up. So I'm looking it up. But also... (laughs) um, So my first question is, is Boo Radley a mute? I can't remember. I think Boo Radley is a mute. 
Or is he just like the town weirdo? But I, he doesn't speak. No, I think he speaks. He speaks in the last chapter. That's the whole point is that they finally talk to him. Right. He's like right? Silent Bob. When he says something, he finally says something. Okay. All right. So um, I can't believe you just made a reference to, like from To Kill a Mockingbird to Kevin. Smith. I know. I was. I was <laughs> such a amazed. huge mental leap that is just like disturbing my brain right now. Especially since there's actually a To Kill a Mockingbird poster behind you. Right. While there, you're recording there is this. a killing poster. So, so all we need now is like Silent Bob and Jay strike back poster <laughs> on the other wall. And then like the awful well, actually, congruity that you just made would make so, visual sense. It's right, so wrong. I'm actually in, my, I'm in my office yeah. at uh, on campus and next to the To Kill a Mockingbird poster uh, on my wall, there used to be a Pulp Fiction poster, but that one fell and broke. So I that had... That would make a little more I sense. I had the duality of my being that. on the wall. But this is... Ugh, Kevin Smith. All right. So, Mutinous is, I mean, uh, Wikipedia is confirming, you know, what I was going to say anyway, which is, it's an umbrella term for a lot of different, I mean, there's so many reasons why a person wouldn't talk from social anxiety to, like, of course it must exist in general if people, you know, have some huge problem on their vocal cords or something in their physical, you know, mouth and throat um but interesting little note from wikipedia here and this may be why we hear a lot less uh usage of the word is uh cause of mutinous can be autism right so if we're thinking of it in that now it's been sort of folded into autism sure so uh we're we're maybe diagnosing people more specifically than just saying eh, they're a mute they don't talk (laughs) he's (laughs) a town mute Right. Well, that's what I was thinking. They said it's it's a sign of progress in a way right. that we no longer consider mute a real a, a category unto itself. It's part of a, a symptom of a a bigger issue right. or something. It's like else being neurotic. Neurotic doesn't exist anymore. Neurotic now has a medical definition. Right. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't All still right. think of my Whew. mother as neurotic. Good thing we solved that. <laughs> Before the the large mute culture on anyway, Twitter. Anyway, one flew over the cuckoo's this. nest. Uh, this actually falls into the category I brought up a couple episodes ago about movies that may be better than the book. I don't know. Hmm. I should reread this book, but the book was a huge best-selling novel. So, um, and it obviously told a great story that has lived on as a great play and as a great film. Um, but I, honestly, I was too young. I don't remember the book. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated, incidentally, by books that become movies and also plays or anything that becomes a play also, because I, I never think of things as becoming plays. Um, there's a there's a new book out right now, I should actually mention, that, that does this, called Helen on 86th Street and Other Stories by Wendy Kaufman, um, which has been a long-running play uh, in New York and Washington, I believe. Um but Wendy Kaufman actually passed away last month from cancer. Uh, she was 50 years old, and her book is coming out just after her death, her first book. Um, and I read it, um, wow. and it is a remarkable collection of short stories, including Helen on 86th Street, which was a short story that was in The New Yorker and then was anthologized everywhere and then turned into a play. Hmm. So what Was the play called Helen? Yeah, Helen on 86th Street. And it's about a, uh, a little girl who wants to... Uh, act in a play and be Helen of Troy. Um, but it's a, I, not to bring everybody down here, but Wendy Kaufman was a wonderful writer and book critic in Washington, D.C. And she knew she was dying of cancer and knew that the book was going to come out um, after her death, unfortunately. And uh, she had, um, she sent it to a bunch of people for, for blurbs and, and whatnot. And so I got to read it a couple months ago. And 
it's a weird thing to to read a book knowing that the author of it is not going to get to enjoy how absolutely wonderful it was and all the praise that they're going to receive from it. Um, right. So that's not my bookshelf revisit or roulette, but it just occurred to me <laughs> that I should probably mention this wonderful book, which is out now, and you guys should all go buy it. Wow. Cool. What do you have, Julia? I have uh, a graphic novel that I remember enjoying but can't remember anything about. Uh, <laughs> It's called Castle Waiting by Linda Medley. Have you guys read it? No. No. Um, so it's basically a medieval fantasy. I mean, as far as I remember, it's kind of like an everyday life in a medieval fantasy world. What? Um, this sounds awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Like, there's a... So just opening it up randomly, there's a man with a horse's head, and he's just saying, look how much you've grown, lad. You're catching up to your father. And they're all, like, chatting. <laughs> and then, uh, ooh, what's this? Oh, hold on. <laughs> I found a bookmark in it. Oh. That's pictures of me and my friends using a Korean photo booth where you can put sparkles all over yourself. So that's an exciting... <laughs> This is one of my roommates in New York, so that's when I read this. Oh, that's a nice <laughs> little bookmark. Eight years ago. Um, yeah, so it, um, I remember really liking it. Oh, look, here's Jesus on the cross. Oh, I, I love that bit. Here. That turned out uh, well so for yeah, the Jews it's, it's medieval, it's fantasy, but I remember it being really funny and kind of down to earth. Um, I read this when I went through like a huge graphic novel phase of I had just discovered how much I love them, and then I looked up like... 10 best graphic novels and read them all and it was great and that obsession only ended when i realized graphic novels cost 30 dollars and take me two hours to read exactly (laughs) that really is my problem with graphic novels too it's like and then you always have this book that looks so beautiful but it it goes so quickly like the experience it's like eating candy you know it just goes yeah it's like oh i just ate dessert it's like over i know although Mm. i've gone back to my friend Dahmer several times since reading it like that that's the only graphic novel that i've read since we've all been together in this relationship that i've gone back to more than once to go and read it again uh actually not because one that i keep returning to and thinking about is black hole it really creeped me out big time too yeah so i've given black hole to a lot of people (laughs) not you know like i've loaned out my copy to a lot of people Mm -hmm. and did Um, you guys see allison bechtel uh she got a macarthur genius grant uh, oh my god speaking of so I lost my shit because I've loved her for a long time. And I, uh, speaking of plays into, books into plays, um, so there was a musical made last year of Fun Home, which is really, really strange. Um, because it's about, uh, if you guys haven't read Fun Home, seriously order it yeah, online while you're listening to this. Uh, it's, it's in my top five favorite books ever, but it's a, so immediately revealed in the first like panel is that it's a memoir about her father killing himself and her coming out and her realizing that he was gay also and their shared relationship with literature. So, um, really not a musical theater heavy, uh, subject, but the play was really, really, really good. Um, they did it at the public theater on Astor Place. And if this music was beautiful and it did a lot of cool stuff with like creating, using the sets and lights to create comic panels. And she was played, Alison Bechdel was played by three actresses, one actually writing the comics and talking and giving kind of that memoir perspective. 
and then one coming out and then one of her as a little girl and it's it was just really really good so if it's ever mounted again anywhere i highly recommend going to see it because it was it was great cool yeah wow Huh. I know. I wonder if it's touring. That would be. I would love to see that. It's definitely not. Um, like, I guess this was technically off Broadway, but it, it was just. A, it's a small theater in on the Lower East Side. So, I've been meaning to go see uh, Caucus playing here in L.A. right now. Oh, it is. Oh, really? Yeah, the play that we read. Um, and it's actually by my favorite theater company. There's a local theater company that I've done some work with before called Rogue Machine. They're really good. Um, I've loved all their productions. They did. They do a lot of original plays, but then obviously they do some smaller, maybe missed masterpieces. And they're doing Cox. So I gotta go see you it. Gotta go I, see the it. reviews have been really, really positive. But even if I don't go, our listeners, if anybody's in LA and wants to see that play, which we talked about uh, maybe ten episodes ago or more, maybe twenty, amazing. maybe thirty. Maybe <laughs> it was earlier this year. I feel like that was this year. I don't know. I don't know. Times of God, we've circle. done a lot of episodes. All right, Todd, where are you at? We're gonna run out of bookshelves. You realize that? Like we're gonna get to the point where Roulette just lands us on a book we've already talked I've about. I've got a lot of books. Times. Um, so I landed on a book of poetry by a wonderful poet named James Meats. Um, so I'm, uh, as I said earlier, I'm actually at my office at the University of California, and so my bookshelf. Is, uh, or shelves are often filled with the books of people who have come out to speak for me at the MFA program I run. And James came out and talked um, last residency, two residency ago, something like that. Um, and this is a wonderful book of his poetry called I Have Designed This For You, um, which I bought when he was out, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I have a favorite poem in here, but I have to ask you guys to pronounce a word for me because I, I don't think I know how to pronounce it. Uh, it is the word S-I-M-U-L-A-C-R-A. Is that simulacra? Simulacra? Simulacra. 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 Okay. So this is uh, his poem from his book. Uh, I have designed this for you called A Hidden Beach. I am imagining the motion of a boat as you say something about tomorrow. How at rest the mind thinks uncannily. Rouge, ruse, sails, and stars in the harbor. Here a tangent, there a tourmaline sea beneath us. I am not a sailor nor a sextant with which to chart any course. Everyone arrives eventually. Rouge on your cheeks, I suppose. I am building a bridge of paper cranes. When Panther was just a hidden beach, I slept there a while. I sleep now in the land of beaches and lovely... Simulacra. Simulacra. Someone calls out a warning, then cancels it. I am remembering that we once were young. We were as strong as memory. And that is A Hidden Beach by I Have Designed This For You by James Meeks. That's really cool. Um, He's got a couple books of poetry. Uh, He teaches creative writing uh, in San Diego. Um, Really cool guy. Very nice. uh, Good teacher. And uh, if you're in the Southern California poetry scene, uh, he reads out in and around San Diego quite often. You get to see him. but just a, a little small book of poetry that you guys have probably never heard of and that I happened to land on uh, nicely here in my office. And then I got to oh, read a little right. poetry about about beaches and that word I can't say. Sim, simulacra? Simulacra? Yeah, so simulacra is like this idea of a, a fake representation of something. Right. But then, um, like a simulation, literally. You know, but then, but then uh, Baudrillard is a French uh, philosopher and he he came up with this whole sort of postmodern theory about simulacrum and simulacra, like basically that we we're so divorced from reality, like in our normal existence that we know we live in simulacrum without even 
realize like I don't like a Disneyfication of our right. life basically. We're but in like, the Matrix. Right. Yeah. He, he. Yeah. Yeah. So like you know a mall is like a, a an example of simulacra kind of gone crazy because right. it's you know it's not it's supposed to represent a like normal market or a town square but it's built to just be the simulation of a town square. Like right. the Grove right. is like the perfect example, yes. right? Because it's perfect. like made to feel like a. The Grove in LA is this outdoor mall, and um, where Todd just had a recent book signing, actually, and where we did our live show. And it's like, you know, it's always baffled me, <laughs> but that's like the perfect definition of simulacra because it's like this is supposed to feel like a town, but it's not because it's built just for these stores but then there's a fountain the, and a square and there's a trolley that inexplicably like runs down the middle of it for no reason <laughs> it's like oh we it's like the simulation Going of nowhere yeah well it's like it's perfect because we're in los angeles which is the worst public transportation ever right like everything and then you have to park your car in this giant parking structure which is always full and it's a huge pain in the ass and costs you like 10 bucks to park there unless you're going to a movie of the Grove to then go down and walk where there's a pleasant version of a pleasant simulacra of, uh, you know, public transportation that you can like <laughs> dodge in the street. It's like, why don't we just have public transportation to this place? <laughs> oh, so annoying. Anyway. But the, the really weird thing about the Grove specifically is that it's not even a representation of a downtown. It's a representation of the Disney downtown. It is, of course. I mean, it's, it's a fake it's Main a, Street it's a that fake never existed. That is exactly exactly like the Disney downtown. It's yes. it's really absurd. And Baudrillard would say, like, yeah, like the Main Street downtown that Disneyland created was a simulacra of something that never right. really existed. This idealized 1940s, 50s Main Street all American, which is a complete bastardization of you know. And the, the real, weirder thing is that it's next to this great old farmers market that's been in L.A. since the beginning of time, that is actually got weird little nooks and crannies and corners and odd shops and stuff. And then they built this bastardized reproduction right. of it. Fake store. version of it. Right. But then the fake version comes to have its own life. Yeah. And, and, and what's crazy mm-hmm. is like how many people I know actually like going and hanging out at the Grove. Like as if yeah. it's a normal town square. Like they sit on the bench mm-hmm. or they go there for a drink or they meet friends. You go to a movie like or we have our live show there like right. so they're in a weird way the simulacra has taken over right i mean that's what whole point right. right it becomes a perversion of its own it becomes its own reality i think you're going to enjoy julia's take on this in her book of essays i am the ghost simulacra in american society that actually, <laughs> actually that's a pretty good, good title for that it, does sound pretty good. <laughs> it sounds a little like excavation a it, memoir it does indeed we which we're going to talk discuss. about next by are we all done with our bookshelf revisits have we all, all i the, think we are i think we are and uh, we've, right. we've talked about 85 different books on top of it so i know we've talked about a lot <laughs> we'll be back so. shortly to talk about excavation by wendy ortiz Welcome back, everybody, from an arbitrary break where Ryder apparently got a piece of toast with something orange colored on it. What, what do you have locks. there, Ryder? Locks. I can't believe you didn't recognize locks. You're a horrible you got locks? Jew. Yeah, locks yeah toast, ha- happy Rosh Hashanah, by the way. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and to you, too. Shana Tova. <laughs> to both of my Jewish friends. Okay. To Pistel and Ryder Strong. <laughs> so, um, we have a book to talk about that came to my attention through Kevin Samsel, um, who many of you might know as a writer. Um, and also he does all of the events at Powell's Books. 
and he runs the press Future Tense Books out of Portland. Um, and it is a book called Excavation by Wendy C. Ortiz. It is a memoir that Future, De Future Tense just put out um, about a month and a half ago. Um, and Wendy C. Ortiz is, and, and can we briefly stop for just one moment and say, um, it's weird when you have to talk about someone who has the same name as your wife, isn't it? Or your spouse or sibling or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like, as soon as I say Wendy, I'm thinking that I'm talking about my wife, and my wife did not write this book. Well, I get even weirder because there are guys named Alex, and so I have to yeah, talk about somebody named Alex who is not my wife, but then is a guy. And so it always sort of like, oh, Al he, uh, whatever, yeah. And this goes back to my discovery some time ago that I say my name differently than other people say my name. Todd. As opposed to Todd. Differently than I say other Todd's names. Okay, At well any rate. Let's move away from our narcissism. <laughs> We're going to do that. So uh, Wendy Ortiz, um, she's a writer who lives in Los Angeles. She wrote a monthly column in McSweeney's. Um, she, her work has appeared all over the place, the New York Times, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus. And she runs a very popular reading series in Los Angeles called Rapsodomancy. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Rapsodomancy. It's like simulacra, but spelled differently. Um, and it's very popular in and around L.A., and she has lots of uh, great folks to come and, and read out there. Um, I had read some of her essays in previous places before, but was not familiar with this book until um, I started reading other reviews of it. Um, and I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about, because it is a memoir about, a, about Wendy when she was beginning in eighth grade, began a five-year-long relationship with her teacher. Um, who at the time that the um, relationship, and we'll talk about this as it relates to abuse, obviously, in just a moment. Um, he was 28, she was 13. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the, uh, of the show, it, it's really, as the title suggests, an excavation of her memory and of her emotions and of this very odd time in her life, obviously, and the this weird line between abuse and relationship that she was in. It's a, it's a highly upsetting book um, and a highly provocative book because Wendy herself asks a lot of questions about, um, you know, what we consider child abuse and what we consider sexual abuse. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a very difficult book to read, but it's also funny in places and, particularly evocative of the San Fernando Valley in the late 1980s and early 1990s, um, and written with a, a kind of poetic lucidity that I think you see in a lot of great poetry post-trauma. Um, so I, I think there's some interesting things to look at there. But just to start with, it's, it's an interesting counterpoint to a book we read earlier in the year, which was Tampa, um, which I think listeners will probably remember, which is what we did in our live show with uh, Ivy Pakoda about a high school teacher who seduces a young boy. Um, this is a more... And that was uh, a novel. A novel. Yes. This is, this is, this, is a, uh, this is a man who seduces a 13-year-old girl. Right. Um, so it's, it's obviously a, a different um, situation, but it is a... There's some very unique parallels to it, and particularly in terms of the grooming that goes on. Um, so I'm interested in, in, in what you guys think. Um, Julia, what, what were your thoughts to start with? Okay. Wow. All right. So, um, I, so I was of course thinking about Tampa the whole time we were reading this. Um, 
And I just feel like I'm happy this book was a memoir. I don't think I've ever read uh, a memoir of this length about this subject. I mean, it's really tackled often in fiction, and fiction creates a sense of distance that this book just doesn't have. So it's very Mm -hmm. intense to read. Um, And I think that she did an incredible job of uh, creating a sense of fear and also you know the details just they all seem right it doesn't seem like any part of this is exaggerated or um dramatic at all it's just this terrible (laughs) step-by-step uh account of what happened with this relationship and uh i mean i don't want to give anything away but i also the way that the relationship ends is something that is very not dramatic and is very depressing and sad. And I think that it's uh, very telling and true that she chose to do this this way. So, I mean, it's hard to say with a book like this, I enjoyed it, but it definitely has a lot to say about abuse and uh, power and just, God, it's so, it it struck me as very real. I mean, uh, the book that it, that came to mind when I was reading it is The Kiss by Katherine Harrison. I I was going to say the same thing. I had the same exact thought. Yeah. The kiss um, is the one about the ancestral yeah. father Yeah, the consensual mm-hmm. sexual relationship father Yeah, you guys have talked about this before. I've never yeah. read it. Is, is that book good, though? I mean, is it well-written? Because this yes. is incredibly well-written. That book. I think is this book well- is better. This excavation is better than The Kiss in that way. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, better the, written. The, the Kiss, I, I think The Kiss is, was a, a very good book, but I think what Wendy does particularly well is show the... I mean, th- there are points in this book where I really pity the abuser mm-hmm. you know and it's it's the way she is showing him and i'm like why am i pitying this fucking child abuser right. um and it's you know it, it's it's the truthfulness of how wendy portrays it because i think um she shows the reality of her own emotions at the time which obviously are were being manipulated by this man but also manipulated by her drug abuse and all sorts of other things right. too right. um whereas the kiss it it felt um, more apologetic in a way. I don't I don't know if that if that sounds accurate to you, Julia. Yeah, I, it's been a long time since I read it. I mean, I think the kiss is more sensational in many ways. I mean, starting with its title. I mean, the difference mm-hmm. between the two books you could almost say is right there in the title. I mean, excavation is right. really about Wendy Ortiz taking these details and really confronting them and. Um, and it's interspersed with uh, episodes or thoughts later in her life about her experiences, you know, figuring this out and really integrating it into her life, um, which I at first didn't like and then ended up loving. Um, but I think, Todd, what you're saying about sympathizing. So I never sympathized with um this guy, which I don't feel bad about, (laughs) but, um, what I think she does the best, I think what she absolutely nails is her own aging and how her emotions change. And so she shifts from basically, you know, totally innocent, manipulatable victim to someone who truly sees him as pathetic. And that is so interesting and sad. And so you you see him less as this like monster or villain and more as a, you know, pathetic figure yeah. who has no control over his own life either, which is just masterful and so much more true than this idea of a pedophile or a child molester as a complete, you know, monster. 
Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, I, I he was pathetic. Mm-hmm. Like, I just felt... I mean, he initially feels as awful as you can imagine because he he starts out right away manipulating her. She's a little 13-year-old girl, and he starts right away Immediately. turning her. Yeah. And, and then by the time she's 17, 18 years old and is still going back and forth with him, he's just a... Fu- he's disgusting, but he's just... He's a pathetic sack of shit. Well, but that's what I think that that goes hand in hand with what Julia was saying about the progression of her perspective that is so artfully Mm -hmm. done in this book. It's like in the beginning, you know, there's this sense of like danger and whisper and excitement. And the way she represents those conversations, it just feels like a 13 year old girl's POV. Mm -hmm. It's like words Mm -hmm. like crush. And she talks about like the power of the word crush. And he uses the word crush. But she like is able to write it with this excitement and this sort of journal. I mean, obviously, she did keep journals at the time, but they, they, her the progression of her perspective, I guess, is so well done because it's a slow boil and, mm-hmm. until the end when you're like, oh, this guy's 32 and he's got a housemate or he's got a landlord hey, that he doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, and like just the situ- and then you know the, the by the time she accompanies him to the graduation ceremony of like basically his Another next victim <laughs> like yeah. he's got this yeah. other 13 year old girl that he's horrifying anyway, right? and that whole se- that is so brilliant because she ends up being more mature than him in that scenario mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. far as the, the 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 parents of of the girl they treat her more like a fully realized adult trying to set her up with another friend of theirs and like treated that she ends up being almost in a way that he isn't and it's such a fascinating scene um so yeah, I I think it's really, I, I I was less in I was really into that progression of her perspective and and it was it worked on me perfectly because at first I was like, oh is this gonna be like a bad, a bad mortified, uh, mortified yeah. you know is yeah. that live show where people read their right. journals in the sense that it's just gonna be about how much she loved this guy and and how this guy clearly you know but no the 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 book was way better than that it actually, her perspective changes so subtly and. Uh, and accurately represents, I think, the aging process. I feel like I've lived my teenage years with this girl. It's really cool. I know. It's a cool Absolutely. And also because she was, she was inhabiting all the places that I know. <laughs> a They're good so portion close of my life my I spent. I know. Like castaways. I couldn't There's get over that. that like, like, by, the time she, when, oh. by the time she was like, and then I was waiting outside of Notre Dame. I was like, oh, that's where my ex went to high school. Like, I know this. Yeah. And I know this era, too. That's what's so great. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is the era of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was shot at the Ga- the Glendale Galleria, which is what she mm-hmm. talks about. Go- or not the Glendale, uh, the um, Sherman, Sherman Oaks. Oaks Galleria, which is where yeah. she talks about going. And I feel like there was that period, like 1985 to 1990-something, 95-ish, mm-hmm. L.A. Valley is a very specific time and place. And, you know, I, I know it. I know it well. And she, man, she nails it. Like, she, all her references she... are spot on. And even the four and twenty that she goes yes, to. Yes, I used to go to four and twenty. Go there. The four and twenty is where I went for breakfast. So creepy. Yes, yeah. that was my spot. Oh, oh no. God. That is so. And weird. I think that evocation of the San Fernando Valley is part of it because I think outside of LA, people know that the San Fernando Valley is the porn capital of the world. Right. Also, and if you saw the movie Boogie Nights, for instance, you know that's all over the valley. Or Magnolia. Um, I mean, P.T. Right. Anderson is of this generation in the same era. He came of age. Right. And Magnolia and Boogie it, Nights were both sort of, and uh, Punch Drunk Love to a lesser extent, but they all are about the valley in, in a very... Or Valley Girl. Valley Girl. I never um, but <laughs> it's a great movie. Nicolas Cage is in mm-hmm. it. Um, but her, her ability to convey this sort of 
suburban malaise yep. that sat over the valley then. Mm-hmm. And just the idea, we're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese and we're going to get fucked up and go right. to Chuck E. Cheese. Well, you know, it's a weird collision of like access to all the things that a city can provide in terms of drugs mm-hmm. and strangers and weird Volkswagen yeah. buses. There's like, Ugh. there's that city aspect, but then it's a very suburban existence. Like that's what makes the Valley such a unique place, especially at that time, is that, it, you know, this population exploded post-World War II in Los Angeles. But it's like, it's it's a city, but then it has the feel of a suburb, like in the Valley. Mm-hmm. It's a very unique space to grow up in as a child. And, you know, I knew it well because I was kind of one foot in it as a kid actor and then one foot out of it in my hometown in Northern California. But obviously I grew up with a lot of people that grew up very much entrenched in this world. And it is, it's a, it's kind of, it's a big drug community. Uh, it's a big tattoo drug post hippie mm-hmm. community. And she nails it. Like, you know, what does mm-hmm. she call it? Hippie come lately at one point. And right. she just, she ca- you know, like I can see the like beaded doorways and like boring afternoons. It, she just, it was, it, I find that, really one of the best parts of the book i'm less into what you were talking about julia the present day stuff like Mm. i almost Mm -hmm. wish i didn't know anything about her present day life i almost wish that that was never brought up because it's so half-assed and it's such like just a sprinkling you know she has these sections she calls notes on excavation throughout the book where Mm -hmm. she gives just a little glimpse of her present life and then at the end the sort of final chapter is a definite like here's where i'm at and i guess my problem with all of that stuff was that the memoir started to veer close towards a conversion narrative. And mm-hmm. I don't like conversion narratives. I think that they've been done <laughs> well, but there's a, a narrative predictability that I thought she should have resisted more. Like, you know, the conversion narrative is usually somebody, you know, literally, I mean, it comes from somebody like written after St. Augustine's Confessions where they literally discover Jesus and they convert. But a conversion narrative also often is about addiction or an abusive relationship and then how they overcame it. Right. Yeah. And, and this, I, and this became less interesting to me when she starts talking about like her time in the Pacific Northwest and going to therapy and going to groups to sort of confront these issues. Um, I understand that that obviously in life is a very important process to go through and conversion narratives, but, but it minimized this as a, as, a work of literature for me. I was I was more interested in just sort of being in the moment with her as a teenager and not having the safety of she got out of this all okay. I wanted it to be a little messier while I was reading it, I guess. Um, so I know? totally agree, and you're reminding me why I didn't like them, um, but they're not all like this. Uh, they're not all narrative, and the ones that weren't narrative were the ones that I liked. So right. one, the, the one that turned me... Uh, was why I didn't tell, and it's just a list. Mm -hmm. And it's very well, I mean, normally I'd be like, oh, God, what a device. But it's just very raw and simple. So why Mm -hmm. didn't tell? I didn't want to be average. I mean, just that alone could have, I was like, wow, that's great. Uh, I didn't want to be average. I didn't want it to end. I was comfortable keeping secrets. And she goes on. There's maybe 40 reasons. But um it's just that to me did add to the narrative that and you know i mean excavation is such a heavy-handed title that i was very worried about this book but then seeing those moments of actually excavating it without narrative i i enjoyed so at the end she talks about um the la brea tar pits lady woman whatever um and thinks about herself that way and, and i liked those moments but i do agree with you that the like and now i'm okay um 
right. you know, we don't need that. We, well, I, we also, trust that if you're writing the book, you're okay enough to write the book. Right. Well, and then it also opens a huge other door, which she calls queerness at the end. Mm-hmm. That to me was like, whoa, 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 this is a kind of a big subject of its own. I don't know if, you know, we inserting that it felt a little clumsy in this book like because there were moments earlier on in the book i was like oh is this going to be part of the story of her realizing she is gay and it's like actually no Mm -hmm. like that ends way like this story the this memoir is covering ends pretty much with the relationship with the teacher Mm -hmm. so that seems like a whole nother story that i don't i don't know if it has a place in this unless she's going to continue her memoirs in a Knosgard way, like this is volume one, <laughs> which I don't get that feeling at all. And it doesn't end. It ends with a very sort of good narrative of, you know, so when she brings that in at the end again, it sort of makes that like a progressive, she, she implies almost that that was where she ended up as part of the journey that started by this book. And it's like, there's so many gaps between where this book ends and that point that that's like a whole nother memoir that I almost wish she didn't bring it in. It's like learning, learning where the boundaries are to this narrative, I feel like she misstepped a couple times there. And that one was a major well, you, one. Here, here's my sort of thought on this, is that this, that's, this, those things, those, those interspersions of her life now, the list, all that other stuff, um, is the difference between a memoir published for a commercial audience right. and a memoir published for a non-commercial audience. Right. And we talked about this a little bit as it relates to Tinkers. Like that was not a book that the, the big publishers wanted to publish. And so it's it's a little bit like, you know, if you if you look at this compared to, I don't know, Wild or something. Right. Um, you know, it's an entirely different kind of book, obviously. But, you know, Wild has a, a pretty beat by beat journey. Yes. Or if you look at it even compared to, um, you know, Night of the Gun by David Carr, another person excavating their life. Um, you know, it's going to have the, the simple dramatic beats. This doesn't, and it, it in a way it makes, it reminds me of like something Adrian Rich would write mm-hmm. um, or, you know, Margaret Atwood when she was a, a young woman, she wrote a, a lot about this sort of stuff um, where it's, I mentioned poetry before, where it's, it, it's not necessarily about what happened, but it's about examining the little pieces of it and how those little pieces last until today. Mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily if it makes a lot of great narrative sense, mm-hmm. but it works into that sort of model of the literate, but not for the masses memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, The Kiss is a, is a good example of a for the masses shocking trauma memoir. This is not a memoir about it's a memoir about trauma, but it's also a memoir about, as Adrian Rich once said, you know, diving into the wreck and then getting back out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a different model at play here. I, I thought that I thought that the interspersions of the modern day, I felt similarly to both of you that sometimes I, I just didn't want to go there. I, I wanted to stay in that moment because I, I didn't want to leave the the, you know, shag carpeted bong water stained rooms of the horrible things and right. to go back into the real world right um it, it actually broke the tension knowing that she yes. got out of those rooms. yes it was better to not know if she was going to or how she was going to come out of this mm-hmm. if she was going to come out of it safe but you're right it is more but commercial you... like the the commercial version is my life turned out great this was my bad history let me just get right. it to, yeah and so you're right i mean she probably felt pressure to 
widen the appeal of the book a little bit. Um, I couldn't help but think I like her as a writer better than I like this book. Hmm. So I kind of am excited. I haven't read anything else by her, so I'm excited to see what else she has. Like, I would love to see her take on a novel with this kind of detail or, you know, character detail and realism um, because she she really accurately captures mindsets and emotions and has unique turns of phrases that really work for me. Um, the way she she visualizes, you know, like, visualizes emotions, you know, internal states. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just a... There's some, really incredible artful writing but there's part of me that halfway through this book was like uh she had to get this out like she had to write this book and i hated feeling that way like you know but it it was like you know it's that that fine line between when am i reading someone else's therapy and when am i reading like something you know and and i i think that this book is incredibly well written i actually highly recommend it um and i feel like this should be required reading for young high school girls definitely <laughs> no seriously like every 12 year old girl should like be handed this book if they're like i have a certain reading level they should be handed this book because there is this trap of you know what what people like this predator this this teacher figure in this book take advantage of is this maturity and intelligence that a lot of young girls exhibit i think at the age of 12 or 13 and you know there's 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 a really cool factor to this book, which is that he uses her writing to yes. get to her. And when you think about which that, when you're so reading a memoir that is a mm-hmm. written book that she has clearly become a professional writer and owes that to a big part of that to this teacher who clearly right. wrecked her emotional life and, and then physically violated her in a really inappropriate ways it's it's it, it immediately puts you in this weird position like and she does it really well like on like the third chapter they're on the phone together having horribly explicit sexual conversations they shouldn't be having between a 28 year old and a 13 year old and he says you're not writing any of this down are you and she's like no and then you know she is and then that she ended up transcribing that into the book that you're reading mm-hmm. it's like it's such a weird position because on one hand you're like oh, you are a strong person. You lied to him and you did write it down, but then you only wrote it down because he helped empower this image of yourself as a writer. So it's this confusing, like she has this legacy of him that she's participating in, in part by writing a book about him now. Right, because he was her English teacher also. Right, it's this awful, like she's empowered by him to write about him. And it's it's just a weird, it's it's an icky, icky I read an interview with her, I read an interview with her online somewhere where they asked her a question about that specific thing. And she said something along the lines of, you know, he was always very supportive of my writing. Right. And I just thought, oh, my God. But, you know, she she's, you know, a, a woman in her 40s now. And she can look back on that moment and say he did support that. But, of course, it was in service of grooming her sexually for something entirely different. Right. Right. But, it, I mean, it's. I, I mean, I was so afraid. Go ahead. Uh, I was just, I mean, I was afraid. So I think I've said many times before on the podcast, like my least favorite trite narrative is like, and this is how I became a writer and used my Mm -hmm. story (laughs) to tell this story or whatever. Um, And she doesn't do that. So it's really cool how um, by writing the book, it, the horror of this experience is infused in just the existence of the book, but it's also used against him as, as Ryder says, Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole, I mean, she's obviously taking such detailed notes 
you know, and throughout the, that's really the big threat in the book is him saying, don't write any of this down. And right. of course, you know, she is. So yeah, I, I love that aspect too. What were you going to say, Todd? The thing I was going to say also is that it's not just one teacher. So he is friends with all of these other teachers at this middle school. And frequently, Wendy would come over and, to hang out with him and there'd be other teachers from her middle school there and she'd come over and hang out with all of them. Right. And it's just this bizarre culture of these, none of these adults, and adult men specifically, saying anything. But I think that that, that, that happens a lot. Like I think that, that that's what's, that's what I love about this book is that it captures what I think is the messiness of teacher-student relationships and and where that line of adulthood and childhood is. Like it's a, it's a constantly moving goalpost, you know. And mm-hmm. and how you manage that relationship obviously is in the it's the responsibility of the adults, but often they are not sure what's happening. Like I mean, I think one of the most powerful scenes is when Jeff ties her to a chair oh my god in front of another teacher that's his friend in order to instruct her on the dangers of trying to get uh, to, of hitchhiking basically because uh, she's hitchhiked over to his house and it's such a bizarre scene because mm-hmm. it's it's a it's 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 a teacherly scene right like he's doing the good thing which is uh <laughs> well. well supposedly he's oh, he's trying to scare her straight right her like, this. <laughs> well but you know what I'm saying? Like, from his friend's yeah. perspective, who doesn't know that they actually have this sexual relationship, right? At that point, this guy, Jesse, doesn't know that Jeff and Wendy are sleeping together. So from Jeff's perspective, he's watching a teacher enact, a, in a weird way, something that he thinks is being responsible. But, of course, he's it's sexualizing her. It's, it's, it's torturing her physically, like, tying her down. It's bullying her. It's, like, an awful gut-wrenching scene. But you can see how maybe both the guys at 29 or 30, however old they are, maybe walked away kind of rationalizing it. They were like, oh, that was weird. I don't know. There, it's, like... There's, it's a fucked up scene. Let me read a little bit of it, because this, this is one of the parts that I underlined and was like, holy shit, yeah. this is the weirdest thing ever. So he's tied her to a chair. The The... The teacher's name is Jeff, and his friend is named uh, Jesse. And so Wendy has started to be like, hey, get me out of this fucking thing. And so Jesse says, Jeff, man, she gets the picture, taking his eyes off my tied ankles for a moment. Jeff raised one finger at him. He turned back to me. Okay, Wendy, you hitchhike, and this is but one possible fate. Do you know there are people out there who will do this to you and any other girl that's out on the street looking to get looking to get from one place to another? I mean, how can I make you understand? Look, I have a fucking heart on here, he said, smacking his crotch through his pants with an open palm. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at his crotch. I looked down at the smoke-scented bandana on my mouth and felt sleepy. My nostrils flared like they do right before I start crying. You don't want to get raped. You don't want someone to do this to you. But when you get into their car, you don't know who you're fucking dealing with. Some asshole, maybe. You'll never know. So he's standing there with a heart on. Smacking pretending, it pretending Jesse. to be the role of a predator, actually right. as her predator, Absolutely. as her yes. predator. It's the most right. horrifying thing I've ever read. Right. It is but I bet you, like, I wonder, like, you know, I'm so like, what is this guy, Jeff, Mister Ivers, her, you know, mm-hmm. abuser? Like, what does he go on in his life thinking? Like, this guy is, pro- you know, I mean, she doesn't go into his. Like, I'm assuming they're not in touch anymore. But now there's, like, some 60-year-old dude out there, right, who in the 80s had this fling. Like, how does he characterize it? He probably characterizes it well, as, Well, he's like, a registered sex offender now. You think That's so? what it says on the back of the book. Oh, it is? 
Yeah. Oh, good. Her teacher now a registered sex offender. Ugh. Wow. So that's good. So he probably did it again and probably got oh, caught. Oh, yeah. Well, she right. says in the book that she found out he had other people. And, of course, by the end, you see him grooming this other girl. But here's what – here's my question. Like, you know, in your life, you see a lot of weird shit. And when you're young, you see a lot of weird shit. But this dude, Jesse – who sat there and watched his friend tie up a 15-year-old girl right. and smack his erection in the room. Yes, weird. Like, where, where is that guy now? Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't that guy in jail? You know what I mean? But that's the thing. Like, human relationships are weird and messy, and you walk away from a situation, and you, like, rationalize it to yourself because it's, you know, it's hard to do the right thing. Right. Like, it's really hard to stand in front of, like, a friend of yours and say, dude, you're being an actual psycho right now. You know, right. like it's, it's it's a weird situation, like, and that's that's why this the, book is the really book good, is because it those... captures the weirdness of those moments in a way that yeah. doesn't like Tampa by making it more sensational and more of a narrative. To me, does a disservice to real abusive situations. You know, like mm-hmm. it, because it, it sensationalizes it, and yeah, you could say like it raises awareness. But it also, like, tidies it all up, you know? Like, the end of Tampa is, like, a violent, blood-covered extravaganza, you know, like Lolita. It's, like, this big thing. Whereas this book, much closer to what I think really happens, is that people just move on. Like, they say goodbye to their abusers. Or their abusers end up going to family reunions or high school reunions and showing up in their lives for the rest of their lives. Like, you know, shit just happens. And then people, like, turn a blind eye and move on. And you just say goodbye to your your guy who you know molested you or had sex with you all throughout high school and then you just go on it's like that's horrible you know like to not be able to put a boundary on this or like recognize it for what it is Mm -hmm. it's awful but that's what she does such a great job of communicating so (laughs) so you know it's not a happy read but it's an accurate book and i i feel like yeah i feel like a lot of people should read this too you know, it's definitely, I mean, even writing wise, like I liked it, you know, it's not like my favorite thing we've ever read, but it does feel like a book that is important. <laughs> it's not a happy book. Yeah. It does feel like an important experience, um, to kind of get into this mindset outside and, and of I a think, commercial world, you know, outside right, of TV right. movie or, you know, really commercial books. Right. And I mean, what Ryder said earlier about every 16 year old girl or whatever should read it. I mean, the the thing is is that it really shows i think just how sort of nasty it is and sordid and not romantic it becomes um and and because even wendy herself starts you know talking about looking at the articles of sex offenders and you know teachers having sex with their students but her realization that she's with a scumbag and with a loser even when she's 15 or 16 years old like that that should be the thing that every 14 year old girl sees is that if a 28 year old guy is interested in you uh it's because he's fucked up right <laughs> uh it's it's not because he probably can't handle people love. his own age right there's something wrong I, with him yeah i don't know if any of you ever worked in a restaurant before but every time when i was a young man and worked in restaurants there's always like the 30 year old manager who was having sex with the 16 year old hostess yeah. and at the time i was like oh that's so fucking gross and now in retrospect i think oh my god someone should have called the cops right um you know it's but i think the way she she shows the her own self-actualization which is also brought on by you know sex and drugs and her horrible parents and all of that stuff too uh 
that she's not in the middle of something romantic, that she's in the middle of a life that's going to seed, I think is a, a fascinating thing. But it opens up sort of these big questions about where were her parents? Why didn't her parents see? Why didn't other adults say anything? Why didn't other kids say something to their own parents when they clearly knew what was going on? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this entire culture of secrecy that goes into something like this. Right. Um, and I think we all like to think that we do the right things. Like if this were my niece or something that my niece would be smart enough to say something. But who knows? You know, I mean, that's that's the thing about being abused is the abusers control. You. Right. And, and it's you, also you there's also something the right intrinsic to being a teenager that she captures so well in this book. And regardless of the abuse, like, I feel like this is an important thing to be written about. And, and it's captured really well here is is the way that teenagers do have secrets like it's important for mm -hmm. teenagers to have secrets i think like because it's a separating of your your parent you're separating from your parents you know and that's going to happen at a rate that your parents can't determine so you are mm -hmm. going to get older and do things that they don't think you should because you're not old enough and you feel like you are and like it was so interesting to me the way that like wendy as a character was doing really well in school so you're reading mm -hmm. all this shit about her like doing so many drugs and like planning her entire weekend about how she can get drunk and high. Right. And you're like, Oh my God, she must be ruining her life. And then like, Nope, she kept up good yeah. grades. So nobody cared. And like grandma <laughs> gave me money. And you realize like that happens all the time. Like kids are good kids, but of course they're doing other things that their parents wouldn't approve of. And that's a normal, healthy process to a certain mm -hmm. extent. But when it includes fucking a guy who's, 18 years older than you you're you've crossed a boundary you know or that moment that she captures so it's a gut-wrenching scene where the guy offers her a hundred dollars essentially like oh, handing her a hundred dollar bill to become a prostitute it's like this moment where yeah. she's gotten a ride and you know she took a ride from a stranger because she wanted to get free booze you know and it was yeah. and you can see that impulse like on one hand there's like the childish impulse to do an adult thing which is I want to have fun being drunk. I'm going to meet with my friends later. This guy can take advantage of this older guy who wants to just get me drunk. But then, of course, you're playing with fucking fire. And the guy's going to turn out to right. be, you know, luckily in this case, all he wanted to do was offer her $100. But he could have been a complete rapist psychopath. Um, well, he, he does grope her. There you go. And... <laughs> Yo, totally. I mean, it, I'm not saying there's anything appropriate. But I also... I'm saying that, she, you know, she, adolescence is this murky territory and like figuring yeah. out the bound, you know, what you will or will not allow people to do to or for your body or like, you know, it's so complicated and it's especially complicated for girls in a way that I definitely didn't understand when I was a teenager. And now like reading a memoir like this, I put myself in the mindset and I'm just like, what an insane time. What an insane time, especially for a woman. And I'm so glad I'm not well, having a daughter. Let me ask you an important question, Julia, since you're the one woman in the room here. Yes. Like, did you, so. did you at 14 or 15 have a crush ever on an adult? Oh, what a good question. Um, not that I can remember. I mean, truly, most of the adults I interacted with were my teachers, and most of my teachers mm -hmm. were female. I mean, like, being a male teacher in a middle school or high school environment must be an insane experience because if you're in mm -hmm. any way cool or attractive, I mean, there are feelings of 
you know, like wanting to be around the cool male teachers because there's less male teachers, first of all. Second of all, men are more comfortable really in this powerful position in our culture. So, you know, like they're just, they teach differently. I mean, I wouldn't say that across the board, but you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. The cool guy teacher. Right. Well, he occupies a a different space, right? Because you have parents and then you have kids and like the single guy, like between the ages of 20 and 35 represents a third type. It's like a new type Mm -hmm. for a high schooler to encounter because it's like, Oh, you're not married and kids. Like, so you're not part of my parents category of type of person, but you're also not a kid. And you know, the, I love like the way that this Jeff, you know, used like song lyrics with her. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, Oh, right. Like song lyrics are like kid code. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're a teenager, it's like there's a pop song, but then if you decode the lyrics and you know what the singer's really talking about, it's like a certain, like, I read into this, you know, and he taps into that as a 28 year old guy. And he's like writing her lyrics. And it's like, oh, it's so sleazy. I do remember. um, So anyway, I'm sure I kind of vaguely recall like crushy type feelings, but they weren't, they were just like looking up to people in a way of like, how do I interact with this? Like, adult man um Mm -hmm. but nothing nothing even close to the level of this i mean she was more self-assured as a teenager than i have ever been in my whole life but um (laughs) i do distinctly remember uh, a, a social studies teacher i had in middle school who was a great teacher um but she was super young and super attractive and i remember um, the boys in the class just sexualizing her left and right. Like, and I, if I was hearing this, the like complete loser who was friends with no boys, like, I'm sure that she was just rampantly, you know, verbally sexually abused, you know, by 12 year olds, which is really, you know, this poor woman, she was an awesome teacher. She was, I remember so much of what she taught me, uh, and yeah, she she didn't last long at my middle school, and I wonder if it was in part because of that tension. Mm-hmm. You know, it must be extremely difficult. Well, and there, it's very funny. Well, not funny, haha, but ironic, I guess. That she, Wendy in the book says how often "Don't Stand So Close to Me" by the Police yes. was an important song, <laughs> right? Because it came out like the year that she started. It came out right, right oh. in that time, and there was a remake version that came out like '86 or something. I mean. And she is so aware. She's reading Lolita, so she's hyper aware of it. You know, the other thing I was thinking about, uh, I don't know if either of you saw the movie or the play Doubt. Did either of you see oh, that? Yes. Yeah, I love that movie. There's that great moment uh, in the movie where Viola Davis, who plays the mother of the boy who the priest is having sex with, and Meryl Streep are walking, and Meryl Streep wants to tell this woman that her son's being abused. And Viola Davis says to Meryl Streep, if this nice, articulate man has taken an interest in my boy, basically, maybe that's a good thing. Right. Maybe I want to let that happen. Oh, God. And you realize this strange, murky area of abuse right. where parents that let third shit happen person does exist. For other, yeah, yeah. People... Where stuff is allowed to happen because right. the parents want that person in their life or what have you. That's not the same as what happens here, but I think what this book brings up are a lot of big questions about you know what a 14 or 15 year old girl wants and needs emotionally and then this person shows up and gives it to her. right he i mean he clearly fills a fact i mean the father is gone throughout this book and then the mom is 
an alcoholic. So there's this vacuum in Wendy's life, and it's her mom's an alcoholic who's reliving her own teenage years by the time right. Wendy's yeah. seventeen or eighteen or whatever. And it's it's a really troubling book, but asks I think really you know really deep and important questions about about abuse. Mm-hmm. And I you know the the nice thing is that she got out the other end of it. You know she's a successful woman who's becoming a therapist on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean the book doesn't is it a happy book? And you know it has a. a semi-happy ending in in the sense that she's still alive and she's doing things and she realizes her own mistakes um and we're not her own mistakes but the the terrible things that were done to her Mm -hmm. um and you know you get to read the bio on the back and find that she's a registered marriage and family therapist and you just think well great here's someone who actually knows how to deal with someone with problems because god knows she had them you know Mm -hmm. yeah Point. And, you know, don't you want that kind of person being the person who helps you solve your own problems, someone who's intimate with trauma? Mm-hmm. Um, you Do you want someone who's never been through any shit telling you how to deal with your own life? Not at all. Mm-hmm. No. no. When I pay my 30 bucks a month, I want someone who's been through something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, definitely worth the read, and good luck to you, Wendy. Yeah. Thanks for the I can't book. wait. So, yeah. I also can't wait for her next book. Like, I really hope that yeah. she writes a novel or something that's on a different subject completely, but that takes these tools that she clearly has and um, expands a little bit in, in, a, in a different direction. Cause... Yeah, she's absolutely got a bright future ahead of her. She, she knows how to convey complex human emotion, that is for sure. So that was Excavation by Wendy Ortiz from Future Tense Books, available at fine booksellers everywhere. But you should go buy it from Powell's because that's where the publisher of Future Tense also works. And you'll be able to uh, line his pockets with the uh, nine cents of royalties and on each book. <laughs> um, and then coming up next week, what are we, or in two weeks, we're reading another super sad book. A uh, book of poetry, right? Gabriel by yes. Edward Hirsch. And then we're going to lighten up after that. We don't know yes. what we're yeah, doing. Let's but find like a straight comedy bow. after that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll find something funny to read. But if you haven't started reading Gabriel by Edward Hirsch, give yourself a little bit of time and about 15 Xanax. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks where we read Gabriel, a poem by Edward Hirsch. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening.